1: You're tuned in to the show on the road, a music discovery podcast where every episode I'll dive deep into the creative minds of your new favorite songwriters, band leaders, and sonic explorers who, like me, have dedicated their lives to traveling the world telling their strange stories to anyone who'll listen. My name is Zach Lupatin. Let's go. this week on the show i'd like to finish off our season strong with a powerful southern sister act that has been wowing audiences around the world with their transformative take on dive bar ready delta blues and slippery slide guitar driven rock and roll larkin poe as it is almost halloween i would like to read you something spooky to get you in the mood Okay, pretend you're wearing your most velvety black and you're standing at the edge of a cliff, which really our country is right now. Okay, close your eyes, here we go. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, that it is and nothing more. Indeed, it behooves me to tell you that Rebecca Lovell, who sings lead in Larkin Poe, and Megan Lovell, her older sister, who commands the stellar slide work, are indeed distant relatives of Edgar Allen. Their name did not come from Eddie, unfortunately. It came from another long-dead grandfather, after their eldest singing sister, Jessica, stepped away from the band, leaving the younger sisters to contemplate if they wanted to continue playing bluegrassy harmony-rich folk music, which had gotten them on shows like A Prairie Home Companion, or to strike out in a very new direction. I want you to take a step back and think about that moment in your life where you really had to decide what and who you were going to be. We all grew up going to school. Maybe we go to college. We come out thinking we are going to conquer the world. For me, I always thought I was going to be a novelist or a playwright, seeing my words blossom in the world and then take a life of their own. But it turns out that image I had of myself, of writing ravens into the night like Edgar Allan before me, it didn't really work. I was lonely. And there was something more intoxicating and real and raw about writing stories with music to ride on. And while we may be getting used to it already, it is still spooky and kind of sad that all those beautiful dive bars that would host bands like Lark and Poe when they're just coming up from Denver to New Delhi stand empty like haunted ghosts, waiting for the music to bring them alive again. And it didn't have to be this way. We are defiant in the United States the point of killing ourselves. COVID-19 cases are up to record levels again, and that means no live music in all your favorite dive bars and theaters and stadiums will be dark for the foreseeable future or be out of business by next year. Much like a coral reef, the ecosystem of music will be dying by the time we get back out there. And hardworking bands like Larkin Poe that have put out a new record in 2020 don't get to spread their music to their fans and their listeners. And while there has been legislation on the books to save our stages and save bands and artists around our country, nothing has been passed and everything is at a standstill waiting for a new regime to take over and to actually make things better. Just look at the White House where our president lives. Has there been any art and music brought there in the last three and a half years? Sure, some may find it silly that Obama still puts out a playlist of his favorite new artists and his favorite new podcasts, but have you ever wondered what President Trump is listening to? Is he listening to anything at all? I'll tell you one thing. Republicans and Democrats and independents, they're all listening to music all day and all night. And someone has to make that music. A human being has to think about the words, think about the chords and how they go together and how the harmonies fit together like a glove. And yes, just like you use water and you use heat and gas, you use music every day. Someone has to make that music. And if there's one band that has bootstrapped their way into national consciousness, it's probably Larkin Poe. In fact, Rebecca and Megan have taken that do-it-yourself mentality to a new level. Almost all of their songs are written, produced, performed, and distributed by themselves alone and their own record label. And while they have gained a devoted following for paying homage to legends like Robert Johnson, the Allman Brothers, and the Moody Blues, they've also put their own Raw bone stamp on their stellar ZZ Top-esque originals like Self-Made Man, which is also the title of their empowered newest record. There is something to be said about truly mastering your craft in all phases. And that is something that Megan and Rebecca have done in spades. The results of all their hard work has been encouraging. From their show-stopping appearances at festivals like Glastonbury, to opening for Queen and Elvis Costello, to headlining the 2020 Mahindra Blues Festival in Mumbai, India, to snagging a Grammy nomination for their hard-stomping record Venom and Faith, one would think that these ladies should probably keep following their do-it-yourself instincts. As you can imagine, Larkin Poe doesn't plan on taking it easy at all, even though they haven't been able to tour in 2020. In November, they will release Kindred Spirits, a collection of beloved stripped-back covers, so you should stick around to the end of the show to hear their acoustic version of Lenny Kravitz's Fly Away. I will tell you that it felt really really good to fly away from reality for a bit. I went up to Big Sur and there's no service and you have to just be under the trees and not think about the election and all the people, the fine, hardworking Americans who never even bothered to try to vote. It's one thing to believe in something, to stand in line and to vote to take people's rights away. It's another thing altogether to see the evil in the world and to say, I don't care and I will do nothing to stop it. Did you know that in 2016, 42% of eligible voters did not cast a vote? They let this happen. Are we going to make that same mistake twice? I don't think so. Maybe I'm an eternal optimist, but I think we're better than that. If there's one thing that always lifts my spirits, it's music and new songs by new artists that I've just discovered. That is why I do this podcast. And that is also why I've helped my band Dust Bowl Revival plan four straight virtual music festivals. Our fourth Suede Home Fest is happening this week, October 29th and 30th. It is totally free. Just go on our Dust Bowl Revival YouTube and Facebook pages. We have artists like David Bromberg, Tim O'Brien, Aubrey Sellers, the Mammals, folks who've been on this very show, and I'm really excited to bring my new little side project, Patio Club, out into the world with our first little live set. And wrapping it all up Friday night, October 30th, Dust Bowl revival with a brand new live set. I want to thank everybody for sticking with me through all 79 episodes of this podcast. Thank you to the kind souls who have kept our rating perfect on iTunes and everybody who's shared this show and their new favorite artists with their friends and family. It means a lot. If you hear little blips and bloops throughout this recording, it's because we are recording across time and space over different technology that we weren't even using six months ago. Also, I write, edit, and produce this all myself. So be a friend and donate. Paypal, ZNLupatin at gmail.com. That's Z-N-L-U-P-E-T-I-N at gmail.com. On PayPal, every little bit counts. That's about all I can do for now. Please turn up your speakers, crack a cold one, sit back and relax. I bring you Megan and Rebecca of Larkin Poe. Hardcore, lock it up, I never...
2: (laughs) I
3: am Rebecca Lovell, I'm the baby sister I sing, lead vocals, write a lot of the songs Mm -hmm. And we're in Nashville together in my kitchen I am Megan, I am the older sister
4: I sing some harmonies and play lap steel
1: As I was asking before, before the delay interrupted us (laughs) How did you decide to become the lead singer? And it was partially because you used to sing as the Lovell sisters with your older sister
3: this is correct. And I think um, seniority as the big sister definitely came into play in this decision because as the younger sister and not necessarily wanting to be the lead singer, my big sister pulled rank and said, no, you will be the lead singer, <laughs> and here we are 10 years later. And and I, I love it at this point. It's just, I think, a, uh, some, a pair of shoes that I had to work towards growing into. And
1: I'm going <laughs> to pretend that I didn't already say this, but when I was reading the... Allman Brothers book uh, that Greg Allman wrote it reminded me of you guys because Greg never thought that he should be the lead singer and he wanted Dwayne to be the lead singer or anyone else in the band and he had this deep (laughs) primordial voice even as like a 17 year old and sometimes it's hard to see and hear your own voice and your own uh, energy and you have to have an older sister uh, or friends to be like look You're the singer.
3: (laughs) Well, primordial, dude, primordial is the best word I've ever heard used to describe his voice. And if I could come anywhere close... To sing in like Greg sings, I would be, I could, I could rest easy in peace, but. You I know, like I, that I'm Dwayne in this situation. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm completely okay with that.
1: <laughs> so you come from Atlanta, right? Originally, or is it somewhere outside Atlanta?
3: We claim Atlanta as our hometown, but originally back in the, uh, the early, the late eighties and the early nineties, we were born in Knoxville, Tennessee. So we are East Tennessee girls, the land of Dolly Parton. And then our folks moved us to Georgia.
4: Yeah, so uh, Calhoun, Georgia, it's a bit north of Atlanta.
1: You know, in this dark time, it's important to note that also today is the day that Dolly Parton put out her new Christmas album. So, like, there's the yin and the yang of 2020, you know?
3: This is true. This is this is a beautiful sentiment, and God bless Dolly Parton.
1: We decided, I think, uh, a few days ago that regardless of what happens during the election, uh, in November we're just going to start decorating the christmas tree on election night <laughs> to like try it. to like lift our spirits
3: just bolster that situation a little bit you know what i think that's really why sometimes we have to go on the offensive you know the defensive in 2020 is just not coming through very well so you got to like be ahead of that shit you got to be like on the the far side of the curve getting ahead of whatever's coming around
1: so you decided to put out your uh, newest record, Self-Made Man, in the height of the pandemic, um, which I think was smart because I needed to rock out at home with you guys, <laughs> and uh, it's really a great album to turn up really loud when you're in a bad mood.
3: Oh, man. You know? Thank you. That's one of the best compliments we've received for the album. And and that's precisely why I went ahead and put it out. Like. We were seeing a lot of other artists like delay in their releases, um, trying to wait for a more opportune time to put out an album. Because it certainly was not an ideal time to try and promote an album. But we figured, man, music a lot a lot of times we view songs as like companions for people. You know, if you have a broken heart or you're going through a tough time, usually you define like where your emotions are by what song you play. And we figured if if somebody needed a friend, then we wanted to give them you know self-made man's they could listen to and have have some support
1: it is annoying that there isn't a comparable term like self-made man with self-made woman right it's like what is the comparable <laughs> term
3: <laughs> well interestingly you know and this is this is something that we've delved into and simple simple fact being it's because that's not the phrase the phrase is self-made man and the phrase in and of itself is what inspired the song because we ourselves have said self-made man as a compliment many times in our lifetimes. and, and uh, It's like defining success by gender. Yeah, like there's no need to qualify success by, you know, what your plumbing looks like. And so whenever that that realization occurred, our dad always calls it a BGO, the blinding glimpse of the obvious, um, we decided we needed to write a song about it because, you know, when, when inequality is masquerading as wallpaper in a room, it's so in the room and you don't even see it, you gotta call it out.
2: I was down and now I'm up again. When I roll the dice, everybody wins like a caterpillar.
1: guys really have made a point to produce your own records, start your own label, and it's sort of the bootstrapping story that we think should be in American music, but a lot of folks um, I think are afraid to really do it themselves, and they want to uh, sort of have everyone else's voice tell them how their own voice should sound. And I think you guys... Being a family band first, I think know how you should sound.
4: Over the years, I think we have kind of learned what it is that we want, and um, yeah, I think that we are big do-it-yourselfers. Like we, our parents really showed us the path in that way. Um, Like they were, they were always big do-it-yourselfers. So we thought, why, why not? Kind of Mm -hmm. continue that into our music. And it is scary to think about producing yourself. Because it is taking that sort of a, um, a third voice out out of the room, um, but for us, I think we kind of needed that pressure. Um, we we needed to be able to take the reins ourselves. It's been a great decision.
2: Yeah, um,
3: and I I like you. You said scared that some people might feel scared, you know, by uh, by taking it on yourself. And I I do I do believe that the majority of the music industry and life in general is a confidence game. You know, if you can convince yourself that you believe and you're can, and you willing to bet on yourself and at all costs, just, you know, just go for it. Any, you know, any problem that there is to be solved, you have to just have the confidence to get in there and solve it. There is no right way to do anything in life outside of just not like ripping people off relying. You know, outside that, it's fair game. Like, go on, make your record how you want to make it. There's, you know, there's people out there who want to hear it.
1: You have... The second line of, of the first verse and the second verse has this gamble and bet on yourself mentality. You know, when I roll the dice, everybody wins. And keep your fingers crossed, because I'm a lucky charm. Which you is, know?
3: I mean, that's like, if that's not a confidence gain, thank you. But that's like total fake it till you make it. Because half the time, I don't feel lucky. I feel like I attract, you know, flies. Like, other things attract flies. But... It, when, you, when you allow yourself to have that you know, braggadocia, sometimes you can surprise yourself by, by what you are able to manifest, and that's exciting. <laughs>
1: well, I think the new modern music industry has changed so much in that we have to be everything at once, right? We have to be entrepreneurs, we have to be graphic designers, we have to be uh, photographers, recording engineers, producers, and then also musicians, Like, that's the sort of fifth thing that we do. Bus drivers, hotel bookers, you know? Yeah. So how do you guys uh, separate roles between the two sisters? Like, who runs what?
3: Ooh. Well, first and foremost, I think what we are to each other, we're really good support systems. Um, So, like, on the days where we do feel overwhelmed, which are many... (laughs) uh, one of the, one of the other sister is like, hey, you got this. We're like, we're pulling through like one of us is, you know, the drama queen. And one of us is, is the, they're, you know, sister, but, um, I kind of take on a lot of the songwriting and some of the more like pre-production sides of the band. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of the video editing, but little old Megan here is no slack. I'm picking up the video editing as well.
4: Yeah, she takes the she takes the bulk of it, but I am I'm rising in the ranks, mm-hmm. um, and Rebecca is is our social media expert as well.
3: Oh Lord! But <laughs> in a Trish traditional touring year, Megan is our detail guy. So Megan, Megan has historically booked many a hotel and routed many a tour mm-hmm. for which we are very grateful and I cannot keep- wait. Tm'd
4: on a lot of the tours, but in the past what year we've gotten a, gotten a tour manager, so that's pretty pretty sweet. It's pretty sick.
1: As a person who loves booking hotels, and by love, I mean hate, um, there's that fine line between just cheap enough without being a place you're going to get murdered, and you try to read the first, like, 10 reviews yeah. of, like, the Red Roof Inn outside Columbus and be like, all right, so Jan and Frank here mm-hmm. saw someone peeing against the wall <laughs> of the building, but." Bob and, and Harold here Said it was super mm-hmm. clean and people were really friendly so, so who do you trust?
3: Yep, it's that sweet spot between uh, Who do you trust? Who do you trust? You, you know, the sweet spot between Not too much pee, but a decent continental breakfast
1: The continental breakfasts in Europe Are something that I sometimes have dreams about at night
3: Oh, oh so good Have you ever, here's a question for you have you ever had a continental breakfast in Norway?
1: That's what I'm talking about. Denmark, Norway, Sweden, we're like... Yes. They go till 1 p.m. I'm talking
3: that smoked salmon game. Oof.
4: That's good. They've got, like, a smoothie bar, you know, stuff like that.
3: It's like, where are we? Are we in heaven? Is this Eden? Have we arrived?
1: soft-boiled eggs, the, like, fresh bread, and you're like, it's yep. 1 p.m. and we're still doing this. This is... <laughs> it's not fair. Whereas America, it's like, okay, it's uh, 7 a 7 a.m. We're uh, we're done, actually. Sorry.
4: And it's like maybe a stale donut.
1: <laughs> yeah. Powdered eggs. Um when you started uh Larkin Poe, you split off from the Level Sisters because your oldest sister uh stepped away, went to college. Um did it feel like a natural transition or was there uh trepidation and a bit of uh, fear that this could really work?
3: I feel it was... There might have been some shiverings of trepidation, but I think also we were very young. You know, we were 18, 19, and, and I think we were very idealistic, and we didn't have any concept that we might fail. So, what is that? There's a there's an incredible song um, by Guy Clark, and he, said, he has a lyric in it where he says, and uh, no one told him that he couldn't fly, so he did. And I think that that's like... The superpower of use is that sometimes you you fling yourself into situations where any sane person would be like, oh, you guys should really stop now. Like you've toured in the red for like five years. Maybe you should just hang it up. But we kind of persevered.
4: I think probably the thing I'm most proud of us for is persistence. (laughs) We've been nothing if not persistent.
1: (laughs) Well, you chose this life instead of going to college like your older sister did, instead of sort of having a traditional um, path some people feel like well if I don't go to college and uh, you know meet all these people that will shape my life who am I going to be do you feel like you have a different education that you wish other people could also have oh my
3: gosh oh yeah, suffice it to say, I mean, I feel that you are you are speaking from a place of, of great empathy and understanding because like you kind of it sounds like you know what's what, because the music industry trying to make you know, a living as a Roots American musician, um, it is not for the faint of heart. And so in that respect, I think I would really wish that on a lot of people, you know, the power of tenacity and uh, self-reliance. But also, you know, it's like, as we said previously, there's no right way to do life. And so I don't know that I would call on anybody to do this if they weren't bound and determined. Because there's something in us that, you know, that that really drove us towards doing this. It wasn't like we actively chose. We did, but also there was something, you know, instinctual in the way that that we have continued to pursue touring.
4: But maybe I could could say maybe a person could step into that life for... Even a week, just to see what it's like, because this is what this is what your normal work a day band is going through to to bring a show to you, so that you have a so that you can have an evening out and and have music in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's a lot of people that are that are making sacrifices to be out on the road. Not that we aren't gaining a lot as yeah, well. Yeah, of course. But there are sacrifices involved as well.
3: Yeah, and you touched on it earlier as well um, when you sort of tallied up, you know, all the different hats that you're, you're as you said, work-a-day musician in the 21st century in 2020 is, is having to cover. A lot of bases, a lot of jobs. And that's really exciting. I think it scratches a lot of itches for us in terms of, you know, being strategic, being creative, um, getting to see the world, learning how to deal with sleep deprivation. Like you just, you, you become akin to, to the work and, and the work changes you to where you are just tailor-made to be a touring musician at a certain point. And and I love that about it. You know, I wouldn't trade it for the world.
1: I think what first uh, drew me to you guys was your love of blues and gospel music that um, obviously is rooted in Southern culture. But taking a look at you guys just at a cursory glance, you would be like, why are they covering... John the Revelator, this old gospel stop song. And that's a song that I have covered for the last 10 years with our group.
2: And it
1: feels like a way into this other world that um, I think young artists uh, of any race, it's up to us to bring that music into people's consciousness as like the true American art form, you know? And... There is always a bit of uh, squeamishness when uh, young white folks are being like, listen, my version of black music. But at the same point, if that music is not being preserved and honored, it will disappear. And I think you guys have uh, elevated songs like that uh, into people's consciousness who would never normally listen to something like that.
3: I think it's all, it's all about the spirit in which you do things, right? You know, you got to be a human of, of the earth and understand the context in which things have happened. And to learn from the past and to also keep the past in your back pocket as a signpost for how to move into the future. Um, and, and when we delve into traditional blues... Um, and have continued to educate ourselves, and really have become students of of roots American music at the behest of a lot of really influential mentors that we've had in our life. You know, really digging in and and trying to acquaint yourself with how things have come down through the years but I think we
4: approach it also with a like a a very deep reverence for for those oh yeah well and also it's
3: visibility because it's one thing to have you know reverence and and then be Led Zeppelin and just rip off blues artists you know what I mean and no offense to Led Zeppelin like they were just there wasn't any I guess standard set at that point as to how you should appropriately you know pay homage but uh, but being able to name check these artists and reference back such that people have that you know that uh, the jump-off point to understand what it is that you're trying to, to make them them hear. That's really powerful, and
4: it's really it is really cool to see um, roots music appearing now in TV shows and like um, John the Revelator was in that show oh, yeah.
3: Lucifer, which I hadn't watched, but yeah. So it is. I think that that's that's really encouraging when you do feel that people are that they are listening and it is affecting them.
2: The Book of the Seven Seals. Tell me who's there, Rodin. Right Down the river later, tell me who's there, Rodin. Right Down the river later, tell me who's there, Down right the river later right wrote the book of the Seven Seals.
1: I feel like your cover of John the Revelator would be approved. By your very distant relative Edgar Allan
5: Poe.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Like
1: if he could have a soundtrack like back in the day on seventy-eight, I think he'd be like, "Yeah, these these girls way in the future who are related to me, they know." There,
3: you know, we can smell our own. We can. There's. It's funny, like going up the family tree from from tip to tail, man. The uh, the Lovell Miller Poe clan. We are, we are a unique breed. Very tortured, very creepy. Bless us, but we are creepy, you know. So I do think uh, there is a trickle-down effect for sure. <laughs> I wish we could have a conversation with him. And we, I bet I bet you'd talk about some interesting stuff. There wouldn't be small talk in that conversation.
1: And Larkin Poe is the name of your. Was it your great 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 grandfather? Four that? four grades, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. greats. Yeah, four greats. All right. Mm-hmm. It's almost Halloween, so. I think if you guys wanted to reinterpret some Edgar Allan Poe poetry and some short stories into an EP, I think, you know, we'd all buy it.
4: Dude, now would be the time. Now is
3: the time. You know, beautiful, yeah, beautifully suggested. And we did, so we made this cover album. And originally we had slated to have it release on Hollow's Eve, which is the night before Halloween. But uh, the vinyl plants are so backed up because everyone's like, quarantine, baby, let's make records. Let's press them, print them up. So we had to delay releasing the album. But next Halloween, we shall, we shall endeavor to persevere to create uh, an Edgar Allan Poe, Larkin Poe. Halloween is definitely our favorite holiday.
1: So. It's true. Do you know what you're going to dress up as this year?
3: Mm. Uh. Funnily, um, my husband and I are thinking of actually going as each other because... The internet seems to think that we're the same person. You pretty much don't have to dress up then. Yeah, we basically just go in our regular street clothes and people are like, oh my God, you guys look like siblings. It's like, oh, well we are married, so I, I don't exactly know how to respond, but thank you.
1: <laughs> he must have really nicely conditioned hair.
3: Hey man, that that man has hair, like 10 people have hair. He's got, he's got a beautiful head of hair. If people are comparing my hair to his, that's the true compliment.
1: What are you going to be for Halloween?
3: I don't know. You know, in
4: in quarantine, I have picked up a love of Star Trek.
3: (laughs) please go with somebody else.
4: I don't know. Maybe I'll go with Data or something.
1: So, Kindred Spirits is the the cover record that's coming out. Uh, When is the date of that drop?
3: November 20th.
1: And there is a single out of... Nights in White Satin, mm-hmm. if you want yes. to feel moody and bluesy about it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't Indeed. actually realize that uh, he was, what did you say? He was like 17 when he sang that song?
3: It's true. Yeah, he wrote it, and it was so interesting because we were able to to get on a, uh, a FaceTime call with Justin Hayward of the Moody Blues who wrote Nights in White Satin. He allowed us wow. to uh, interview him, and having done that, I feel so much more respect for... For interviewers, because I was incredibly nervous, we were both like just jittery as so I get out to uh, to interview him. And the story that he told of writing Knights in White Satin* admittedly was a bit <laughs> a bit scarce on detail because he he acknowledged that he was doing a lot of a lot of drugs back then. But um, he apparently just sat down on the side of his bed and just and wrote it out like like it was nothing, and he didn't think anything special about it. And it wasn't until he worked it up with the band a few days later, and their mellotron player had a little string patch, orchestral string patch, on his keyboard, and wrote that uh, accompanying. I mean, there's like this, you know, da 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 da, the little uh, string line, that everybody in the band really got on board with the song. It was an incredible. If you're curious, the the interview is on YouTube, and it's it's really interesting to hear him speak because he's 70 now, and yet his voice is so youthful, and he's.
5: Very eloquent. Very eloquent. So well-spoken. Major inspo.
1: What were you trying to channel when you recorded that vocal? Like when you record someone else's song, but you want to make it your own. Are you trying to go back in time and feel what they were feeling? Are you trying to bring that into the modern uh, age? Like, what is your feeling when you're recording something like that? That is, you know, a song that millions of people have heard for 40 years, but now younger folks who maybe have never heard of Moody Blues are going to be like, oh, what is this?
3: I like this question. Um... In large part, I feel like that's the beauty of a really well-written song, is that you can find yourself in the song, that there's just enough space carved out where you can cast yourself into the story. And so singing those lyrics particularly, like I can really relate with the mournfulness of the lyric. There's something very vulnerable and idealistic about the lyric. that i can, that I can really, very easily connect with. and And I think a large part of it, too, we, uh, for the very first time in making this album, decided that we were going to record it at the same time in the same room. We would just sit in two live. chairs facing each other and record it live. And uh, i didn't I didn't want to pull any punches. I didn't want to like dress it up so much because there was a lot on the line. So I do think that the way we were recording, Pulled out a more honest side of me that I don't think that I would have anticipated happening. Um, but there is a, a distinct difference between like being in a vocal booth by yourself and you're just like, all right, well, I want to sing it right, so let me let me sing it six times, and all right, that feels good, cool, we're done. The spirit in which we actually recorded, um, it was it was very refreshing and, and easy to to just kind of let it all hang out.
2: Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning the same. Beauty I'd always miss With these eyes before Just what the truth is I can't say Anymore Cause I love you Yes I
5: love you Oh how I love you
1: Have you ever had a moment where You were able to sing a song For someone that you deeply respected Who was a hero of yours uh, in person.
3: Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Um, yes. So we have toured for many years, I guess, starting in like 20. What year did we meet Elvis? Mm. I can't even remember 20. Well, we
4: were, we were probably 16 or 17. So So
3: many years ago, we made the acquaintance of Elvis Costello and became very good friends over the years. And so in the turn of events, probably three or four years ago, we were on the road on tour, it was called Detour. And so he would weave together songs and stories. And for a good 45 minutes hour of the show, we would pop up and perform with Elvis, backing him up on a variety of songs. So we were in the middle of a tour and he emailed a an MP3 of a song. He said, hey, I really want you to learn this and sing it tonight because I'm writing this musical for um, this wonderful screen right called um, A Face in the Crowd, and I'm doing the music for it to hopefully at some point be a musical that is performed. And I would really like to hear you sing this because I think your voice would fit it really well. So we were driving from like Des Moines to somewhere, and we were in the car for like six hours that day <laughs> driving to the gig in the dust of the tour bus caravan because we were in a sedan. Following and, uh, behind. Yeah, we were, and we were very, very humble driving along and I probably looped that song in the car maybe a hundred times just singing it and singing it again trying to learn the lyrics and learn the melodies and so that night we got up and I was so nervous um because we had never played it all together and he's just won it and he's like all right here we go let's sing it and kicked it off and there was I think a weight in singing a melody that he had written and the lyric that he had written that I wasn't quite anticipating doing in front of him as being a little nerve wracking. Um, But it went really well and he was very proud. And interestingly, that recording, the very first time I ever sang this song, Burn the Paper Down to Ash, has been used as their template for the art, like whatever actress, singer, they're looking to cast for the musical. So I was very honored. And so that came out well. It wasn't like, I wish, I feel like it could have very easily been a crash and burn situation. But luckily we just by the by the nick of our teeth.
1: I often like to not fully know my own song, like where you just came up with some part of the song and it's super exciting and super fresh. And that moment when the band really hits it for the first time, it's like a falling in love kiss, you know, whereas if you've made out with each other for four years on the road. The song is like not Mm. quite as exciting you know
3: so man so true that that strikes me as very wise and and again I think in the same way that Elvis Costello was was willing to to let there be danger on stage because so much of the time we are we are very risk averse in terms of delivering show when you know that there's people who've paid to be there you don't want to screw up in front of them you don't you like you want to go for just enough but keep it within the realm of you know, plausibility where somebody like Elvis, he's like, no, they want to see, they want to see that danger. They want to hear that danger.
1: There's another story that I read about you um, being called in to work for T-Bone Burnett. And then Steven Tyler is (laughs) in the house and he's sharing all the candy that's in his pocket with you guys as you're (laughs) trying to (laughs) sing.
3: Dude. Unreal. Really unique person (laughs) it was it was one of my favorite most out of a fairy tale encounters with someone because he was so unapologetically weird like everything that he puts forward in the media in terms of his eccentricity rang so true and so pure in that moment when he He was was, like like, digging in his pocket yeah he was wearing
4: this like plaid cape flowing Mm -hmm. garment flowing garment and he would occasionally just reach into the pockets and bring forth, like, M&Ms and pretzels.
3: <laughs> yeah, and, and then there was that moment where, you know, where Steven Tyler is dumping a little handful of snack into your palm, <laughs> and do you eat it or don't you? <laughs> what is the move? The correct move is not entirely clear, but... Mmm, uh, pretend to eat it. Mm. Yum, 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 yum. yum.
1: <laughs> it, it's like the, the last scene in the credits of Ferris Bueller where the principal's on the bus... And the, the girl who lets him sit next to her is like, Gummy Bear, it's been in my pocket all day. It's warm. <laughs>
4: it's warm. It's warm. <laughs> exactly.
5: He's
1: like, uh, thanks. I feel like there's songs uh on your newest record, like Holy Ghost Fire, that could be like an early Aerosmith song. You know, they just have this bravado and this ballsiness, even from a lady band. Ballsiness also feels like it should be reclaimed by all genders.
3: (laughs) Right? Well, hey, I mean, ACDC wrote that tune. I can't remember uh, which album it was on, but she's got balls. And that's like, that's my mantra, man.
1: (laughs) But you have that call and response, you know, when you're asking people who's going to help me carry uh, my load, who's going to be there for me when I need it most. And, um, you know, Holy Ghost Fire feels like, Maybe a call to a higher power, but um, is there a, a higher power in your life that you are speaking to in that song?
3: I think in that song specifically, it's the people that are, it's the
0: your audience. support
3: system, it's the people that are there with you. Because, you know, we're not like showgoers aren't a dying breed necessarily. I think especially when you're lucky enough to travel across Europe and, you know, hit some of these iconic venues here in the U.S. where people really come out and they're like in it to win it with you. They are participating, they are listening, and you are all sharing like a spiritual moment. Um, and so I think that's, that's the energy that we were channeling into Holy Ghost Fire. It was, uh, it was a, you know, a celebration of, of, of the magic that can be made in a room when people come together and share a moment in time. And they're not h- hiding behind their phones. They're not filming it. They're not trying to capture it. They're just letting it be wild and free. <laughs> oh, as I say that, I kind of hate myself, but it's true, you know?
2: lost myself and I lost my soul. Thumb stuck out on the side of the road. I ain't the keyhole, no one's home. Who's gonna help me carry my...
1: When you're doing the lap steel uh, It's a very specific sound And you started on Dobro, right, initially? Um, Mm -hmm. It feels like that sound for me can take over a song at times Where it can sort of obliterate everything in its path But you have a way of sort of threading it in and around the vocal. So it's almost like water flowing around um, the person in the river, which I love.
4: Wow, uh, thank you. I mean, it has such a vocal quality to it, the lap steel, that I do have to be careful not to walk on Rebecca, because I, I, could, I could be right in her space. <laughs> um, so that's been something that's been fun over the years to figure out how we both live in the same space. Because it's like, yeah, I love to sing harmony with Rebecca. Like, to sing with her is quite a joy. Um, But I I think that I feel that my real voice is the lap steel. Um, So I consider it a a bit of a call and response to her.
1: And that sacred steel music, you know, goes back, you know, a long time in Southern culture. Um, I remember playing a show with uh, the Lee boys out of Florida and uh seeing uh, seeing Robert Randolph in college, mm. and yeah. just being like I don't know where this music is coming from, but as a city kid in Chicago, it is so over my head and overwhelming that I was almost like afraid like hearing it. It was so powerful and raw. and you know, when a guy like Robert Randolph plays, and you could you know see this also in in slide players like, uh, Derek Trucks now, and you know, and Dwayne Allman before him. There's this um, aching, crying out feeling. Like it's uh, trying to express a howling within through the instrument that the, even the vocal cadence can't do.
4: That's what I love about it. The mournfulness of it. Um, the crying out, like you're saying. And I love that you know Sacred Steel because... I have listened to a lot of Sacred Steel, and I think it's one of the, the more powerful moments in music that I've ever experienced. Sometimes listening to those players playing live, it, there's just nothing like it.
1: How did you guys first start listening to, to blues? Was it your dad, or who, who introduced you to this music?
3: Well, as preteens, um, we were obsessed with bluegrass, and so I think it was kind of like the gateway drug, <laughs> when, you, when you realize you know the genre Overlap between blues and bluegrass in terms of repertoire and lyric. Um, it took us a handful of years to, to find our way to the blues. I would say in the last four or five years, we've we've become students of mm-hmm. the blues. And that was kind of of our own volition. Because um, our dad was definitely... Our mom and our dad were both you know big music listeners when we were kids, so very lucky to have music always playing in the house, always in the car, always in the house. From, you know, the Carpenters to... Our dad would be cranking up Aussie, and um, we had our baby Bach tapes, and uh, so really there was, you know, there was nothing off limits. And when our parents got really invested into Alison Krauss um, when we were kids, that I I think was the jump off point for us, in and really gaining an appreciation for for roots American music. Um, so it was a pretty natural progression, but it just took a few years. It wasn't until our late teens we started listening to the blues
1: but a lot of folks don't see the connection between bluegrass and black blues music. Like they see it as completely separate, almost like country versus, um, you know, the the white country music over here and the black down-home music over there, and they would never intersect, whereas they're all formed from the same root.
4: Yeah, yeah, and when you go back and listen to like mountain music, you hear actually same verses of, lyric um you'll hear the same melodies just slightly different like like somebody has heard somebody else playing this song and they take it and they morph it into a a new song but you hear these um these verses repeated across blues music and mountain music and bluegrass
3: Mm, well perfect example too being somebody like skip james and he's one of the hill country blues artists but when you listen to him sing he sounds like a bluegrass singer he sounds like you know, Bill Monroe, when he's singing, it's real high and lonesome. And, um, and, I, I, and I don't mean to say that they are one and the same because obviously they were, they were forged from the same root, but with different, you know, different emotional significance. So to be able to, to have come to the blues through bluegrass and appreciate both and revere both It just feels like two sides of of one coin that I'm just happy to have in my pocket.
1: Well, you do a a version of Come On In My Kitchen from your uh, record Peach 2017 that Doc Watson covered that song, obviously Robert Johnson, and you guys bring a new element to that song that I don't think anyone's ever uh, done. And you mention often that the blues world in particular is very bereft of women artists. And uh, I'm curious how mm. you think that can be changed.
3: Yeah. Well, we're certainly not the first um, in terms of, you know, bringing a feminine energy to the blues. Because, I mean, way back when you have a lot of these underrated, you know, female blues stars at the time. Like Sister Rosetta Tharp and um, a lot of her contemporaries, Bessie, Bessie. Bessie Smith. And, and even now I'm, I feel incredibly optimistic you know, from Bonnie Raitt to Susan Tedeschi to um, Samantha Fish and uh, Shamika Copeland. Like, there's a lot of powerhouse women that are singing blues music and, and singing it very authentically. So, to be a part of that wave feels really good because it's something that we do feel passionately about. It's just about
4: representation, it's about, you know, people seeing little girls, seeing women doing it, and, and, um, realizing that that's an option for them as well.
1: And you have a, uh, a cover of a Blind Willie Johnson song, uh, God Moves on the Water. Um, most people would not be covering songs from 1929, um, but it feels particularly prescient uh, <laughs> right now to talk about the Titanic, like this large uh, collection of humanity all sinking under the waves. Uh, partially out of its own hubris and ignorance. Did you think that that song would have such re- relevance right now, or was it an accident?
3: I would say it was an accident. Um, one, we just love the song, and when you listen to Blymouth Lee's version, the, the ultimate version, um, the slide lines are really complicated and cool, and so we both just, I became obsessed first with the song, and we just listened to it over and over again, because the riff, he doesn't play the riff the same way twice, and so it's just, it's such ear candy. And I brought it to Megan. I was like, dude, you gotta learn this song, because I love it, I wanna hear you play it. So when we were making the album, um, we just felt compelled to record it. And originally, when you listen to, to Blind Willie sing the song, the lyric stays strictly with the Titanic. And so, again, perhaps it was hubris of my own, to write additional verses that broaden the scope of the song, that instead of just focusing on the sinking of the Titanic, I also brought in you know the floods of 1927 and uh, you know all across Louisiana, the Southern Delta, um, I guess the earthquakes out in San Francisco, just kind of like a your you know Baker's variety of of, of calamity and and brought it all together in the song and when COVID did hit and when all this just heavy news started coming down the pipeline for 2020, it did feel yeah. a little bit weird. Um, yeah. I don't think that we are prophetic. I mean, not yet anyway, but <laughs> I mean, believe in that. Um, but it, I think did it, it, it felt know. good to record it. Yeah, and it, it felt good to have the song out. Took on a different meaning for us.
2: Yeah. yeah. we
1: With climate change right now, it feels like we are standing on the deck watching the waters rise and having another uh, crumpet at the gilded table.
3: Certainly, and I, I do think it means something. What it means exactly, it's hard to say, because I do think that's that's the predicament of, of, of how we're living. We live in the present moment. Of course, we can look to the past with hindsight in 2020 and ha, so funny, we're in 2020 In hindsight 2020, Mm. all that crap, but, uh, you know, it's sometimes you're so, you're so lost in the thick of the moment that you don't know, you know, what to do sometimes, or, or you feel overwhelmed by just the, the epic proportions of the problems and predicaments that we are in at the time, like a lot of those passengers on the Titanic, you know, they probably didn't know it was hubris, they probably didn't even know it was sinking at the outset, um, but there are those key people in positions of power that you know you you need to be placing people at the helm who can who can help you steer through a problem for sure um, and if we can you know just be a little bit of um, get another canary in the coal mine like you're saying and and give voice to that little sneaking suspicion that something's not right at the back of your head then that we're happy to be a part of that cause for sure
1: can you speak a little bit about your relationship as um sisters and as creators because i know <laughs> you guys probably have had your differences and i i read a little bit that you know at some point in your 20s you guys were having a little trouble just being okay with each other and it's about finding the common ground um between friends sisters artists like you guys are all of that and sometimes that can be a lot it can be overwhelming
4: absolutely it is a lot and it's been a work in progress for well 31 years now Thir- yeah. well 29, 29 I guess when when you came along yeah uh but we do feel very lucky um especially now we we do work together very very well and um feel grateful for all the shared experience I mean this is my my best friend and and a business partner and Family member, and um, we've gotten to travel the world together and see so many things and experience so much together. So, definitely feel extraordinarily lucky for that relationship because it, it it does eclipse just about any other. Um, we are everything. Sometimes I don't really quite know when I end and she begins. Yeah, that's really well put. Maybe that's dysfunctional a little bit, but it's a dysfunctional that works.
3: Yeah. And uh, I think relationships that are enduring, they don't, one, they don't happen overnight and they certainly don't happen by accident. So to have really committed to working on a relationship and and being um, being humble to accept that we that we need help, you know, from each other and that where my weaknesses begin, that's where her strength is going to extend and so to, to be willing to lean on somebody and to have that trust, we have definitely got that. And, and I, you know, I don't know where we'd be without each other. So mm-hmm. I'm very, very, very grateful.
1: What would be the thing about each sister that you would say is their superpower, Ooh. but also their kryptonite?
4: Rebecca is the <laughs> hardest working person I've just about ever come across. Like she is nose to the grindstone moving forward. Um, just quite a powerhouse uh, with work ethic, but that also can can kind of you could you could fall apart because you are working so hard and True. sometimes can't stop. It's a bit of a workaholic.
3: Yeah. With you, you're an interesting you're an interesting case to try and have your strength and weakness be one and the same because. Just lay it you know, out on the table, know. you know,
4: don't worry about it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Megan is like our intuitive person. Megan is, is the, the gut guy in the group. So when there is a decision to be made about something that isn't clear, then typically we'll rely on Megan's sixth sense or whatever you want to call that uh, instinctual thing. Um, but I do think that sometimes that can, that can be a bit of a burden for you to carry as well um, because sometimes you may read into situations deeper than you should. Mm. So your ability to like be kind of in the fabric of the thing and like understand the fabric, sometimes you may be misjudging the fabric. Um, because I mean, what we do is, is very, uh, heavy with, you know, interpersonal relationships with all the people that we bring on the road and, all the fans that we interact with. And I think that can be a lot for you with that kind of... It can be a little overwhelming. That heightened sensibility that that can be a lot for you to, to, to carry sometimes. Yeah.
1: We have a song on your new record uh, called Keep Digging about the sort of sensitive family gossip that can get out into the world and how you can't <laughs> always believe what's out there. Um, and I think you you got some of that from your Aunt Stella May. Is that, is that correct? <laughs>
3: Yes, it's so true. Um, because we're three sisters, you know, our big sister Jess. We're all within five years of each other. And so our grandmother had two sisters as well, Irene and Stella. So we always kind of looked to them to see the, the different personalities
4: that three sisters can have. And we could see a similarities. Yeah. So, and those yes, three. Stella,
3: Stella May. Woo! Those, those Audrey women. Bell, and Emily, Irene, they would get together and they would just lay waste they could trash talk with the best of them but it was always so polite like Mm -hmm. that you know Mm -hmm. lots of bless her hearts and oh yeah a fine polish on top of just this this very sharp dagger
1: (laughs) if you don't have anything nice to say come sit next to me
3: bingo
2: stella may
1: What is the best advice you've ever received from your grandmas, if any?
3: I feel, um, grandmother, grandmother, so on our paternal side, Audrey, she wasn't a big, like, proclaimer of things. She wasn't overly affectionate. She wouldn't just, like, snuggle you and say, oh, my gosh, I love you so much. But her actions showed otherwise. And so I think by by action, she she also ran home, rammed home the idea of do-it-yourselferism. Because when our parents were young, young parents, and we would have been, you know, between seven and ten years old, they started building their, their own house. So our, our mother and father cleared the driveway. They got out there with chainsaws and, like, brought down 50, 75 huge trees and were teaching themselves how to to build a home and i remember one of my clearest memories of grandmother among many but one of my favorites we were tarring the basement the foundation of the house so we had the foundation erected it was concrete block and i remember seeing her in these little jean shorts and she at this point is mid 60s mid 60s
4: Mm, yeah maybe
3: and rail skinny and she had this little uh button up cut off sleeve shirt so it was like this faded blue and uh, she was standing there in the blazing heat of a Georgia summer afternoon stirring a molten hot barrel of tar and we would routinely go over there and dunk our paintbrushes in the tar and we're tarring the foundation and she was just in it man like she she wasn't complaining or like or, or second-guessing our dad, she's like, all right, let's get down there and do it. And I rem- that sticks in my head as something very meaningful.
5: She was meaningful. also
4: born during the Great Depression is it was very much waste not, want not. Yeah. Um, so we, I think we got some of that from her as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm going to do one creative exercise with you gals real quick before uh, we sign off. So I want you to clear your brains and we have to figure out where the different creative streams go because you guys are very different people and we have to find out how different okay here we go i'm gonna say a word or a phrase and you're gonna immediately think of something anything from your life a song a moment and don't look at your sister it's gonna come from your own brain here we go what do you think when i say the word red rock
4: Red Rocks Amphitheater. We went um, there on the trip, and it was really, really cool to see. And we were talking about um, wanting to play there someday.
3: I was thinking about Minecraft in the un- in the Nether world. Are you familiar with Minecraft? Or we have a oh my gosh, yes. yeah, we have a, a 18 year old little brother, but we were with him through his his, his Minecraft, Minecraft days. Phase. And uh, Red Rock is one of the the blocks that you can mine within this computer game. Red Rock.
1: What is the biggest show that you think you've ever played as Larkin Poe?
4: One, oh, well, there's two. One we played, we've played on like NPR before, that would be several million, but the the biggest show that we've played would be opening for Queen.
3: Oh, that's true. Yeah, it was, because it was a first it was stadium. A stadium. Yeah, in uh, Germany. Germany. Somewhere. Yeah.
1: With Adam Lambert? Yeah. That must have been a trip.
3: Okay, you want to know the coolest part of that show? And this to me, is like the hallmark of a genius because it's so classy. But after the show, when we played, um, we we actually, so to preface the story, we had the good fortune of getting to to talk with Brian May and have a conversation because he was on stage, he came out and watched our sound check and was so friendly and open and conversational and we had some great chats. But yeah. after the show, we went back to our green room and uh, there was a bottle of Moea Shandon in our dressing room. As per the Queen lyric, the Killer Queen lyric, she keeps the moe, and an in her pretty cabinet, and I was just like, that's the best like that's little classy. memento or token that you can give someone, and we we've kept that bottle. It is yeah. like a prized possession.
1: Okay, next word is apple tree. So many, so many. Yeah, come there's, to a, mind. there's a lot. There's going to be that. a lot of overlap
3: on this one,
4: but okay. um. Actually, it's probably because we were just talking about uh, Emily Irene, our grandmother's sister, but she had an apple tree in her yard. Oh, nice! Thinking about that, we that was always fully laden with apples. We would pick them. Yeah. But um, we also, and I bet this is what you're gonna say. We went to apple orchards a lot when we were kids.
3: Well, I had a two prong thought come to my Uh, mind. Evidently, I did too, (laughs) which was yeah. One of our fondest childhood memories is going to North Georgia about an hour north of where we lived. And um, every fall we'd go and buy just Tons huge of amounts of apples and go pick them in the orchard. But I actually thought of from a very early Larkin Poe record, maybe the win- winter apple? I thought of this too for some reason. I wrote a lyric um, in this song called Leaves. Uh, what, what's the song called? Leaves must fall from the tree. Fall, fall from, from the, the tree. tree. Which uh, is kind of centered around the whole, you know, Genesis of Christianity in the Garden of Eden and there's a lyric that I wrote that says the end of the world unfolds from the heart of an apple seed and that's what came to mind which is very narcissistic to think of my own lyric.
1: Alright, last one. Devil.
3: Oh man, I'm so sad of what first came to my mind. Mine's (laughs) mine's really annoying. Say it. Um, So there was one time when we opened for Charlie Daniels. (laughs) And I remember never having been so pissed in all my life as when uh, we opened for Charlie, we played, and then we were hanging out backstage and watching Charlie Daniels from the wings. And uh, my beautiful sister is standing next to me and the drummer for the Charlie Daniels band, I don't know who who he is and no offense to him, but he was being a total D-bag because he had his drumstick and he kept looking at my sister and he was licking the drumstick and like looking at her lasciviously. And I just wanted to, like, pommel his face with a folding chair. But that's what came to my mind for Devil. What's you? name? Um,
4: I was thinking about our cover album again, Kindred Spirits, and we did um, Devil in Disguise, the Elvis Presley song. Mm.
1: And you guys went to uh, Graceland right before you recorded your uh, Self-Made Man record, right?
3: Mm. Correct. It's, it's if the great. ghost of Elvis
1: would have showed up at Graceland to greet you, what would you have asked him?
3: Man, that's a, th- there are so many things that you could ask that guy. Um, I probably would how's ask he- him... How's heaven? How's heaven, Elvis? <laughs> oh, Elvis, are the streets made of gold? <laughs> like your gold MA suits? Um, Actually, I would probably ask him, what does it feel like to know that you have never been eclipsed as the first global celebrity? Really legitimately biggest dude ever there's no one that can compete with Elvis in the same way that Elvis given the time in which he became you know I feel massively like, famous I feel like not that I know him but
4: um I feel like he would be embarrassed by that
3: maybe <laughs> maybe that's a great question I've never thought about that very enviously in fact I remember hearing a story about Elvis Costello he went to Graceland and uh, they let him they let him upstairs they let him beyond the uh, the barriers of the exhibit. And I'm very, don't tell anybody I said that, but I'm very envious of that. <laughs> Except for everybody listening, right? You get to go you upstairs, to go. yeah.
1: You have to be named Elvis. If you're named Elvis, you get to go beyond the velvet rope. All right, finally, finally, last question, I promise. You can put together a tour with... Five artists, dead or alive, Oh! who are those five artists? And you each have to tell me. You can't confer. You each have to have your own.
3: (sighs) Okay, I'm going to go for it. You ready? Yeah. Chris Whitley would definitely be on the bill. Uh Acoustic solo. Mm
5: -hmm.
3: We would have... And this is not in any order, so nobody take this personal, right? Don't come crawling up my, you know, out my back door or whatever with with issue. Take an issue. Okay. Right? Exactly. Um, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers has got to be on the bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, Skip James would be in there. He and Chris would be, like, soulmates. Mm. Um, Probably got to say, like, I think the Stones... Because you, I mean, you can't put on a rock show and not have Keith up there doing his Keith thing, and oh, you can't pick, you can't pick all of it. Because I mean, that's my issue: is that I like across their entire repertoire, the years of their career, I pick my favorite songs. So all of it, Um, and then that's four, right? I have one more. I have one more. Bonnie Raitt. Oh, that was
4: mine. Suck it. Oh. I'm gonna say um, Emmylou Harris, Ooh. Pink Floyd, Ooh. Um, oh man, Almond Brothers, okay, Jerry Douglas. There you go. And um, oh, from to round it out, who who am I feeling? Um, I was gonna say Bonnie Ray, but you know you can you have took, Bonnie too. You took Bonnie from me. like uh muddy
3: waters great minds great minds muddy waters
1: there's another mule kicking in my stall
3: (laughs) sing it i just wanted you to be aware really fast so when we pick back up it's just recording on the phone because we don't our situation is kaput for a moment i hope that's okay
1: indeed it is very okay. That is where everything cut out with me and Larkin Poe, so I'm going to leave you now with their newest acoustic single, Fly Away by Lenny Kravitz.
2: I wish that I could fly into the sky, so very high, just like a dragonfly. I'd fly above the trees, over the seas, and all the greens to anywhere I please. of a mob.
1: Ooh, that was tasty. Give it up for Rebecca and Megan of Larkin' Poe. You can go to larkinpoe.com for their music. Uh, Self-Made Man is their newest record, and Kindred Spirits will be their cover EP coming in November. Also coming in November, a new U.S. president, hopefully. So please get out there and vote. My brain is pretty fried right now. I'm watching the World Series. The Dodgers could win it right now in front of me as I record this. So I'm going to do something I rarely do. I'm going to keep things brief. Coming up October 29th and 30th is Dust Bowl Revival's Suede Home Fest. Yes, that is our virtual music fest. It's back for a fourth time, 3.30 p.m. onward, Thursday and Friday. That specific time. Check it out. We would love to see you there. This is the last episode of our season. Thank you again for listening to every one of the 79 episodes we've put out for the last 2 straight years. And if you haven't gone to the slash episodes you can see all of our archives right there. As always, please check out the other wonderful podcasts on the BGS network like The String and Harmonics with Beth Bears new episodes every week. The show on the road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupiton. If you'd like to donate to this show, znlupiton at gmail.com on PayPal. And, as always, please donate to the bands that you love who are out of work at Dust Bowl Revival on Venmo and dustbowlrevival.com for new vinyl, t-shirts, and more. Okay, I have to say it. As I record this, the Dodgers have clinched the World Series. It's a beautiful day in Los Angeles. I sure hope there's another blue wave coming November 3rd. Stay safe, stay creative, and I'll see you on the trail. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media podcast network.